Welcome to the second part of our interview with Professor Astar. So we'll start from where we left off the other day. We remember like you, you mentioned about uh, how the pandemic makes us think about uh, infection or virus in binary ways, like on the positive or negative. And then we talked a little about, about how binary mode of thinking is like the central part of digital uh, culture itself. And the huge amount of data production during this pandemic, this being one of the first digital pandemic, hopefully first and probably the last as well. But uh, we talked about uh, how we have like have two kinds of data, enormous amount of patient driven data as well as clinic driven data. And uh, so much of data naturally makes ways for their exploitation. So in that context, if we can ask like, how can we reimagine the issue of trust and privacy today? Because that's what seems to be centrally at issue at the, uh, at the moment. And what are the ways, like how might we reimagine the definition and practices of them? What are the possible ways to create more robust awareness of, about data exploitation and safe data practices? What are the policy changes we should be advocating to, to reimagine our digital culture in, as a whole? Yes, well, that's a, there are a lot of questions in there because I think part of the way we need to think about the shifting boundaries of trust and privacy in the context of this digital pandemic um, has to do with what setting we're talking about. Um, in, still, even when you imagine um, settings that are specifically related to health or public health in the context of the pandemic, you have, on the one hand, you have um, individual people with some kind of healthcare provider, right? Mm -hmm. And in that setting, um, you, you may often have people in a virtual health, telehealth kind of dynamic, yeah. um, possibly for the first time ever, right? And then, um, and then if that person ends up needing to go to say a hospital for healthcare, they're also then having a different dynamic with the people caring for them then because of all of the boundaries that we have for personal protective equipment, right? So there's that kind of setting and, and those different sort of um, the dynamic of receiving or giving healthcare um, through a screen changes trust and privacy in the same way that giving healthcare through elaborate PPE changes mm -hmm. relationships of, of trust. And then, but then on top of that, you have additional circumstances like, for example, contact tracing, yeah. right? Which brings in a whole other set of issues around trust and privacy um, that are kind of in some ways on a continuum with the, at, at the other end, at the much more public end of the spectrum that maybe on the more private end would include something like telehealth. But in all of these cases, as you know, the patients and or just members of the general public are being asked to give a lot of personal information to people who they most likely do not have any pre-existing relationship with, never mind a trusting relationship, right? Yeah. So, and on top of that, all of that data is being collected and transmitted through third-party technology platforms, mm -hmm. which we also um, know from the experiences of the past several years are not inherently trustworthy, right? Yeah. In terms of what they'll do with the data. Um, and we don't really have any good reason to assume that they will be good stewards of sensitive personal health information. 
So when you think about all of those different situations, it seems to me that there are a number of sites of regulation, you could say, or policy debate. So mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, in terms of healthcare providers and health data, the existing regulations that govern the um, protection of, um, of health data, HIPAA, the HIPAA mm -hmm. regulations, um, have long, many health policy experts have noted for a long time that they're really outdated. They were written for the era of paper health records, right? Yeah. And so not only can they not keep up with digital health records, but they can't keep up with all the other ways that health information circulates now, which doesn't just happen, of course, in health records. So there's certainly a need for updating the kinds of protections surrounding that sort of thing. In terms of telehealth, you know, right now we have this um, situation of exemption where providers are not required to abide by all of the strictest regulations that HIPAA does provide because of the pandemic circumstance. And there's some, this was part of the CARES Act. Um, and this, there was some discussion in, um, in policy circles about whether some of the um, relaxed regulations that were enabled by the CARES Act, whether they should continue indefinitely. And one way to look at those, that, that kind of exemption um, provision is that it allowed healthcare workers to be nimble and to respond quickly to a crisis situation, which they needed to be able to do. And they still in many circumstances need to be able to do. On the other hand, it also means that, that technology platforms are kind of exempted from um, scrutiny or from any kind of penalty if they do exploit the data that they now have access to. Yeah. So there also needs to be a policy discussion around what roles technology companies play in a healthcare ecosystem that is more broadly defined. Right? So I think one of the things that needs to come out of this is a more capacious recognition that nowadays, you know, companies that are that were never traditionally seen as as providing healthcare and therefore were never seen as covered entities, you know, companies like Facebook or Amazon, yeah. right? Like, yeah. like they're they're not governed by HIPAA and yet they play such a vital role in so many dimensions of the provision of healthcare and healthcare information that we do need to think about the regulation of technology companies specifically in relation to healthcare, which you could think of as maybe a subset of how tech companies might need to be regulated overall. But I also think that actually those debates need to happen a little bit separated because of some of the unique sensitivities to healthcare data when we understand that broadly. Okay, so there's those. And then in terms of, you know, the all of the debates that come up around digital contact tracing, for example, the extent to which all of the problems with digital contact tracing apps, um, when you look at the at the potential risks that they that they pose, they all they keep falling again and again on the most vulnerable populations 
who also are in the most need of additional services. So the question there to me is, I mean, first of all, there needs to be better scrutiny and, and um, accountability for those kinds of apps when they're used for purposes that have to do with healthcare. But moreover, there needs to be a reframing of the understanding of risk and harm in these kinds of circumstances, such that the risks and harms to the people who are made more vulnerable by the use of certain kinds of surveillance technologies, it really needs to be a much more explicit part of the policy debate, which means having things like environmental racism be part of the policy debate. And it means things like, like housing, redlining of housing policies being part yeah. of the health debate. So it really does mean spreading out the debate there too, to understand the domain of public health much differently than it, than it has been in the past in terms of how we think about what the sites are where, um, where those kinds of policies need to be interpreted and in relation to whom, like whose, whose concerns should take priority in those settings. I think that that is that is a debate that that needs to happen and and it's also one that is it's an opportune time to have that debate because there is so much more awareness and discussion now about racial inequities in healthcare and in general mm -hmm. so that i think that there is an opportunity for more understanding about that at this time yeah, that actually really perfectly segues into kind of our next question, which because we're all people coming from an English background, we were wondering if we could get slightly more into some of this language about risk, specifically, as you already brought up, but risk is it's sanitized by the medical slash insurance institutions in the United States to often obscure the unequal material conditions, which result, like you said, in more or less risk. And specifically, we're wondering kind of about some of this language, such as like the pre-existing condition and how that has been very much a part of the COVID rhetoric and also has been part of our healthcare debate rhetoric long before that. And as you were just gesturing to in your answer, how this, pre this language of something like risk or pre-existing condition kind of sanitizes and supposes these quote unquote risks in a vacuum that doesn't take into account things like environmental racism, as that accounts for exposure and conditions in that have a disproportionate impact on a lot of like minority communities and as we're specifically seeing in this pandemic black Americans. So we're just kind of wondering if you could expand a little bit more as you started to do at the end of your last answer about how these discourses of risk have come into the public during the pandemic generally and how risk has factored into this discussion of the social inequities which we've been seeing laid bare by this pandemic. Yes, uh, thanks. I think this question kind of loops us back to our earlier discussion about the role of datafication in um, kind of bracketing off some of the human contexts of suffering in, in this pandemic and, and in healthcare in general. And so when you, th when you think about risk as a quantified concept, which is how it functions in the context of digital healthcare. As you, you know, we were talking about the, the sort of binary qualities of data and 
um, one of the things that happens in the risk discourse around medicine is that it's individualized, right? So in a, an individual patient gets a risk score and that score is only attributable to them and the kind of care and it will affect the kind of care that they get and it will affect um, potentially the amount of um, costs that they have to bear in order to access that care. And it can affect all kinds of other dimensions of their digital health profile um, in, the, in the same way that, um, that this kind of data is shared, by, is shared with or sold to third party data miners. And so that can become, um, so this can become a much bigger problem than just a health risk profile. But the thing is, we, it's actually not impossible if we wanted to, like, let's just say that we accepted the idea that datafication was necessary because of the scale of the pandemic. Even if, and, and I'm not saying that that's true, but if we were to accept that, which is certainly a prevalent view in many, in many healthcare and policy settings, yeah. then I think, you know, perhaps instead of arguing that human experiences cannot be reduced to quantification, which, which I do believe is true, but instead of taking that, that position, I think maybe if we argued instead, well, then we need to quantify a lot of other dimensions of risk and actually fold those into the way that we talk about things like pre-existing conditions, maybe we could get to something more productive. So for example, when risk scores look at a person's, um, the neighborhood that they live in, right? And they look at things like maybe the average cost of um, renting an apartment or, or buying a home in that, in that area. Those scores all become factored into that one individual's risk score. But what if instead we had a more complex algorithm that produced a risk score for that neighborhood, but which was meshed with the individual's risk score in a way that modulated it, right? So instead of penalizing that individual, it showed their increased need for support, for example, or that an entire area needed certain kinds of support more than other areas in order to balance that out so that there would be different parts of the kind of say environmental risk profile that would look at all of the things that are already considered to be part of someone's risk profile so like socioeconomic status you know looking at schools and how they're rated and and even things even data that is you know highly dubious in terms of its value for reflecting say intelligence or or intellectual capability but like test scores so schools you know that consistent consistently have lower test scores when they're in a neighborhood where a person's being risk profiled those those scores impact that person's risk profile negatively but again what if instead that were seen as a sign of something that needed more investment so yeah. if we looked at it that way and then we thought about a risk profile that was much more kind of comprehensive of the entire environment that a person lives in and is affected by, then we might, you know, risk may never be a great 
frame for thinking about the ways that individuals and communities experience health and illness. But I think that the, the most critical part is the extent to which in the current construct, it's totally individualized in this very neoliberal frame, right? Where it's like, this is your risk score and it is your fault and therefore it is your responsibility to fix it or to avoid the outcome, which is inevitable for you. But instead saying, you know, this is the risk posed to you by this environment that you're in. And this, so if that produces a negative, then what is the positive that has to go in there to balance that out? Right. I think that it might be hard to get rid of the notion of risk in a healthcare environment such as the one in this country that is very much, um, it's very much driven by finances and it's very much um, about trying to quantify the, the interpretation of individual um, illness. And, and the success of the care that's provided to that person. So I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic that that is a kind of construct that we could get rid of, but I do think it's one that could be reframed and that might have a productive effect on some of the broader debates about the, you know, what's often called the social determinants of health. Maybe just to kind of, I guess we are veering towards the end from what we were discussing in the manner in which the concept of risk itself is narrativized and how that kind of feeds into uh, questions of how algorithms are determined, how we kind of shift from individualized to environmental constructs of risk management and so on and so forth. To kind of just cap off our discussion here, maybe it would be interesting, and this is just a more speculative question to put out, which is uh, what kinds of narrative around public health and the representation of COVID-19 pandemic do you see coming in, in the future, uh, in terms of popular media, in terms of the kinds of scientific or public service announcements and so on and so forth. What do you think, I won't say the legacy, but the residue of our moment could be in, in public form, in public media? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, in terms of public health communication, if we start there, um, my hope is that this, especially the, the, the catastrophe of the public health infrastructure in the United States, in many parts of the world, but I mean, the United States has been sort of exemplary in how um, poorly it has performed. Um, my hope is that this leads to better funding of public health infrastructure, which in my view must include much more investment in creative forms of communication. Right. So I've long been dismayed by the way that public health communications basically operate on a shoestring budget to no budget, where, while they are up against multinational corporations that have the most talented advertising agencies in the world producing ad campaigns you know, that are regionally specific and that are tailored to particular cultures and communities and languages and all the rest of it, and that are able to sell things like whether it's, you know, drugs, pharmaceutical companies, or whether it's, you know, particular approaches to lifestyle. 
I think that public health communication, if they're starting with pandemic communications or crisis communications, it's already too late. There needs to be a whole different way of communicating how we think about our relationship to the environment that we live in that needs people who are really skilled in the creative industries. So that's one thing. So in an ideal world of the future, the recognition of the need for, you know, a kind of like investment in media, in multimedia for public health would be, would be key. And I think that, you know, one of the things, if we're thinking about an ideal version of this, one of the things that would happen is that they would engage creative writers and, you know, producers of film and television and that kind of thing to help them. And I think about, um, you know, for, in terms of popular culture, you're asking, I started reading um, N.K. Jemison's newest book, um, The City We Became, yeah. right? And I was reading it right as New York City was becoming really the center of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and in that book, you, have you read it? Or do you, know, you know about it? You, have you talked about it? No, all kind of chuckling, I think, because we haven't read that particular book, but all three of us were in a seminar last quarter where we read um, the Broken Earth trilogy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. we are familiar with her, uh, a bit of her, like, concepts and themes. Right. So um, so this new book is, is a little different. I mean, it, it still has a similar style to the Broken Earth trilogy, but it's a little different in that it feels a little bit more like it's set in the contemporary world. <laughs> but of course... Um, you know, she wrote it long before COVID <laughs> broke. Yeah. Uh, but what's happening in it is that New York City is being taken over by like all of these malevolent entities. And there's this like battle for humankind raging, basically. Oh. <laughs> and um, it was uncanny to be reading that around April, I guess, when I when I was. Um, but I do think that someone like her, uh, you know, is she, whatever she continues to write will, will probably be um, a, a kind of nice way to imagine the blend of sort of apocalyptic, dystopian, and hopeful future that, that I expect will come out of this, which, which will include kind of um, bringing the, vo the voices of the oppressed more into the, to the forefront of public discussion of, of what it means to survive and to thrive and what it takes to envision a future that's better. So, so I think of her as, as kind of a, as, as someone who may be able to capture what's to come in interesting ways. In terms of visual media, you know, people, of course, have been forced to make media from home <laughs> and on Zoom and that sort of thing. And I, I do hope that that isn't the future of, of visual <laughs> multimedia entertainment, because, I mean, I, although I do think that, you know, there's something wonderful about in, inserting constraints into creative processes to kind of see what flourishes um those constraints i think for all of us we've you know they're well worn at this point and i think that we we really want to be able to imagine a world that is that is beyond where we are even though i think 
so many so many dimensions of the world that we live in that were not evident to people who don't study who don't have kind of critical views of power and social dynamics and how those things play into health i think for many people in the world this experience has suddenly exposed things that that people who study this stuff always knew were there but there wasn't as broad a public awareness um and i want to believe that this will lead to some creative approaches to imagining a better future and you know i i don't know exactly what that will look like but i do think the kind of apocalyptic undercurrent is is going to be there for a while and i can't imagine any appealing or successful media that that wouldn't have that mm. i can't imagine the kind of like whatever is going to be escapist entertainment in the future is still going to have an apocalyptic foundation right i don't think that there's any way around that without it feeling like it's trying to pretend that the world that we live in doesn't actually exist in a way that erases too many voices that have been silenced for too long and i and i think that that's one of the things that's that's been very characteristic of this pandemic is that you know with the racial justice movements happening at such an intensity at the same time as the pandemic has made it clear that you know this this phrase that that people like to say in public health we are all only as as healthy as the most vulnerable among us or we are all only as safe as the most vulnerable among us i think that may have been a cliche for a long time to many people but i think it's become really clear in a in a different way over the course of this pandemic especially in the united states and so i hope that what that will mean is that we're we hear a lot more truly diverse voices than we have heard in entertainment media in the past and i hope that that will somehow also shape the way that we communicate and understand and tell stories about this period when it is when we can somehow say it's in the past yeah what a what a good place to end and yeah to again to kind of riff off the themes that nk jemison often writes about is we might be in an apocalyptic time but like apocalyptic for whom and what are the di different levels and dimensions of this concept of apocalypse and as we are seeing in this pandemic those are very unequally distributed across you know both the world globally but also through our society in the united states so thank you for all of your thoughts this has been a very expansive interview that we have really enjoyed yeah. oh it's been my pleasure thank you for inviting me yeah, well, thank, thank you. you so much like it's been really we have learned a lot also well, I'm glad. I'm glad. It's been really great talking to you all and good luck. Thank you so much.